Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now, I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So, let's talk paper scissors. We learn our ABCs as preschoolers. We begin to write down our alphabet, combine letters into words, into sentences, and then eventually into stories. When entering into a new industry, it's almost like having to learn a whole new alphabet or a whole new language to understand the technical jargon and the specific buzzwords thrown around. The graphic communications industry is no different, so I would like to take a stroll through the alphabet that we all know and love using it as a framework to explore the ABCs of GCM. This series is split into three episodes that I'm hoping will help explain key concepts in digestible ways. Let's start with the letter A. A is for author's alterations. Author's alterations, or AA, is a term commonly used in the printing and publishing industries when changes are made into the production of a publication, so when it's already at the printer. Any and all changes should be made before the final files are sent to the printer. However, if changes must be made afterwards and they are signed off by the client, typically when they receive the proofs that mock up the publication, what it will look like when it's printed, These are referred to as AAs, and it's the client who pays. So this usually includes the cost to have the designer make the changes and any costs that the printer will incur to reprocess the file and produce another final proof. The alternative to AAs are PEs, and these are printer's errors. And this is when a change or issue has accidentally been made by the printer and it went undetected by those responsible for checking the files throughout production. So PEs are paid for by the printer. Now, what if no one will take the blame? Well, it all comes back to the final signed off proof. Whether that's digital or physical, a proof is a legal document that will resolve the issue of whether changes should be made as AAs or PEs, and therefore who pays for the issue. When I worked in sales for the book printing industry, I had a press operator call me from the shop floor to let me know that he found an error as sheets were being printed at a whopping speed of 18,000 sheets per hour on this press. So he said, this is a reprint and I think someone forgot to update the copyright page. Okay, yikes. So stop the press. I actually got to say this, what a dream. Um, I immediately and nervously called the client to let them know what was going on. And I was terrified that we'd miss this error and or somehow we'd swapped out the old files for the new ones. So I frantically worked uh, to kind of track down the proofs with my client on the other end of the line. After some back and forth, it was discovered that it was their error. It's unfortunate that we didn't catch it until it was already on press, but the client was so thankful that we called instead of having the book completely printed, completely bound and shipped. 
So the lesson learned here is that it's everyone's job to check and recheck and recheck again as a job moves through production. And it pays to ask questions if something doesn't look quite right. B is for barcode. A barcode is a common part of our everyday lives. Just open up your snack cupboard and look to any packaging to find one. Barcodes look simple, however, they have done amazing things to improve the efficiency and the accuracy of all the goods in our lives. As a designer, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. First, barcodes don't have to exist as a black mark on a white background. If you want to get more creative with barcodes, you can. In fact, you can change the color of either the barcode itself or the background. However, there must be sufficient contrast between the two in order for the scanning equipment to be able to read the barcode. You should be very cautious, however, working with a barcode that is more than one color. But if you do change the color, ensure that you are not using more than two process colors. In other words, pick any two colors and no more of cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. Just two, max. When I worked in industry, we printed a barcode that wouldn't scan, but looking at it with our naked eyes, we couldn't understand the problem. It looked like a black barcode on a white background. What the heck? When we took a closer look with a loop or a magnifier, we discovered that the barcode was actually a four color black made up of cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. The slight and natural misregistration that occurred on press was imperceptible to our naked eyes, but not to the scanning equipment at the bookstore checkout. The slightly misaligned yellow peeked out from underneath the skinny black bars, causing contrast issues and therefore scanning issues. Secondly, a word of caution that FPO, for position only, placeholder barcodes are often used in book and magazine and packaging design if the actual barcode hasn't been finalized yet. This is usually a low resolution barcode that has the letters FPO watermarked through it. This must be swapped out with the actual barcode before moving into print production. And there's an urban print legend that goes something like this. A high-end, well-known perfume brand was redesigning their packaging and the designer was working with an FPO barcode. The file was finalized with the FPO by mistake and somehow it slipped into the printer's hands without anyone noticing. You can probably imagine what happened next. So the job continued through production and through printing and through binding and finishing and packaging of the product and then shipping to a distribution center, shipping to store shelves. Uh Uh-oh. And as the story goes, a non-suspecting customer picked up the perfume, walked over to the cashier ready to make their purchase. When the cashier tried to scan the barcode, it wouldn't work. And there were no numbers to key in either because it was a fake barcode. Needless to say, the customer didn't leave the store smelling sweetly that day, and nor did the brand owner. Rumor has it that this little faux pas cost close to $250,000 to fix, undoing and redoing the process that had just been completed by the printer and the packager. So who had to foot the bill? 
It's said that the client and the printer split the cost 50-50 because there were so many opportunities for it to have been caught throughout production, but it just never was. Or not that anyone's owning up to anyway. C is for Creative Cloud. The Adobe Creative Cloud is a magical thing. This powerful software collection allows designers to create professional documents for both print and digital output. In the printing industry specifically, we rely on Adobe Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator, and Adobe InDesign to do the heavy lifting. But what's the best practice for using these software applications to make a professional publication? When do I use each one? I mean, I can draw vector illustrations in Illustrator and InDesign, and I can apply text in all three. So what is a girl to do? Here's a quick three-step process. Number one, do any and all photo editing in Photoshop first. This includes resizing photos so that they're the actual final desired size in their correct resolution. So this is typically 300 PPI for professional print production in the final size. This is a better idea than resizing on the fly in InDesign because you'll be messing with the resolution to the detriment of your final print quality and or your InDesign file size will be much larger than it needs to be. Photos saved out of Photoshop will be bitmap, pixel-based images ready for final placement in InDesign. Number two, do any and all vector and illustrative work in Adobe Illustrator. So this includes creating or working with logos, for example. Maintain the ability to resize the artwork later on by saving your files as EPS files, keeping them in their native Illustrator format, .ai, or saving them as PDF files, which can be reopened and fully edited in Illustrator because PDFs preserve vector. Number three, take all finalized text finalized photos and finalized illustrations from their respective homes and bring them together in InDesign. InDesign is a powerful page layout software that can do a lot more than page layout, i.e. you can resize photos and create vector art. However, it's a much cleaner workflow for everyone working on the files if images and illustrations were created or modified in the software that best suits each purpose. Next, check and double check and triple check the technical construction of the file. So for example, correct document size, bleed allowance, no weird text reflow issues, etc using manual and automated pre-flighting tools built into InDesign. Finally, export it as a high quality PDF for professional print production and your file is ready to be printed. Now there's obviously a lot more to be learned when it comes to creating high quality files for print, both the quality of the design aesthetic and the technical execution of the design, but this three-step process is a good place to start. D is for Descender. Little G and little J, hip hop hooray, little P and little Q, I see you, little Y, oh Y, oh me, oh my. Okay, that was bad. Bad, bad lyrics aside. <laughs> Lowercase letters, also called minuscules, have all the fun. 
They're able to stretch up high with their ascenders, sometimes even reaching above the cap height, and also reach down low below the baseline with their descenders, playfully extending a stem down to tickle the tops of the letters on the line below. When it comes to play, no letter does it better than G. Gadzooks, gee whiz, gloriously goofy in its gleeful G. Sometimes it loops, sometimes it scoops. But consider yourself warned. While descenders have all the fun, they can also be tricky to use in certain situations, namely vertical text placement, as well as tight vertical line spacing, also called letting. E is for end papers. End papers are the underrated, often overlooked link that brings a case-bound book together literally acting as the bridge between the hardcover and the book block of text pages, these two hardworking pieces of paper hold it all together. They're glued to the inside of the front case, as well as along the inner edge of that first text page. The same is repeated after the final text page of the book as well. However, they're often a missed design opportunity. The front end paper is the very first thing that readers see when they open a book, yet most end papers aren't printed. They're just blank. Some use different colored paper to add some visual interest, but many are the same color paper as the rest of the text. Now the exception is in children's books, where end papers are typically printed with all kinds of fun and wacky designs, adding to the overall artistry of the book. It's all in the details. F is for fifth color. Warning, this content contains dorky print metaphors and bad jokes related to 90s girl bands. You've been warned. What's the name of the Spice Girls book printing cover band? The Splice Girls! Ha! Hit song, To Become One. You're welcome. Conventional printing technology uses a four-color printing process of cyan, magenta, yellow, and black ink. C-M-Y-K. Each of these four colors occupies one unit, or tower, of an offset printing press. A printing plate must be made for each of the four colors, and each plate contains teeny tiny dots in specific locations, one for each color. When they're printed on top of each other, the colors brought back together and the full color image is printed. With these four simple colors, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, used in different sizes and overlaid on top of one another, printers can replicate about a million colors on press. Impressive. So allow me to compare this printing process to the Spice Girls. Now I'll compare it to when the Spice Girls were in their glory, disbanded for a while, each going their own separate ways on the printing plate, and then came back together to put on an overly priced but totally worth it performance. And much like the Spice Girls, the show can go on with only four members, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. But doesn't it add another element when there's five members? We'll enter the fifth color in printing, otherwise known as the Jerry Halliwell of print. The term fifth color has a variety of meanings, three of which I'll explain here. So first and foremost, Pantone spot colors. Above and beyond the four process colors, there's an entire library dedicated to specific colored inks. 
Pantone colors exist to print brand colors typically with just a single variable, one single ink color, versus trying to replicate this very specific brand color using two or more variables, such as CMYK. Pantone colors aren't printed in every job because it's not necessary. Most of the Pantone colors can be replicated quite well using CMYK inks, and adding a Pantone color, of course, adds cost to a job that may not be necessary. They're really used when achieving a specific color is critical, and when the work is printed on various materials to maintain consistency, for example. They're also used when wanting to print unique inks that aren't achievable with CMYK, like fluorescent or metallic colors. Now, another way to think about this fifth color is through a varnish or a spot varnish. So there are some offset or digital presses that have a fifth unit, which allows the printing of a varnish or coating over top of the entire press sheet. While the varnish itself is colorless, it changes the look and the feel of the piece through changing its sheen. Spot varnish may also be used to add interest, depth, and a tactile feel to a printed piece. Spot varnish is just that, typically high gloss or matte varnish applied to only specific spots or areas on the printed page to make them pop. And then the final way to think about fifth color is through the paper. While most printing is done on white paper so that the beauty of the colors can take center stage, using colored paper, even if that just means a different shade of white, is another variable to change the overall look of the printed colors. I'll stop right there. Thank you very much. G is for grain. This is the story of how paper is made. Two pieces of paper slip between the sheets. No, wait, that's not right. The paperback stork comes to vit. No, that's not right either. Oh, right, okay, yes. Sheets of paper are made via huge rolls on a gigantic machine called a fordrinier. When paper is made, a massive gloopy slurry of fibers and water are laid out onto a giant wire conveyor belt. As the almost paper travels along this huge conveyor, water drains from the slurry. As a natural part of this process, the fibers contained in the slurry begin to align themselves in the direction of travel, so the long parts of the fibers parallel to the long part of the conveyor belt. Therefore, early in its life in the paper womb on that giant Fordrinier paper-making machine, grain direction is established. Grain direction refers to this aligning of paper fibers, and although we can't see the grain with our naked eye, this invisible force established early on in the process affects how the paper is best printed, how it should be bound, and ultimately, how it will behave when it grows up and enters the real world as a finished product. Now imagine paper fibers like grains of rice, all facing the same direction. As moisture hits the rice in the form of dampness in the printing process or relative humidity in the air of a bookstore, for example, the rice expands widthwise, it puffs up. The same thing happens with paper fibers. They expand across the grain. The wetter they get, the wider they get. This will then affect the width of the sheet and cause unwanted curl during and after a press run. 
Furthermore, grain direction impacts a paper's ability to be folded cleanly. So if you imagine rice again, folding between the grains of rice versus trying to fold across the grains of rice will provide a much cleaner fold. Another way to imagine paper grain is with a snack that you may have in your kitchen right now, Triscuits. These weedy treats have a distinct grain that makes it so you can break them apart cleanly in one direction with the grain and the, the edges are really jagged the other way across the grain, making them the perfect snack to ponder this paper predicament. Finally, grain direction is relative. If the length of the fibers of any given sheet align with the short edge of the sheet, the paper is considered grain short. Conversely, if that same sheet was cut in half and all of a sudden the fibers of the sheet align with the long edge now, that exact same piece of paper is now considered grain long. So, just like the rest of us, paper can have an identity crisis during their awkward teen years. H is for hickeys. Hickeys are pesky little marks that show up between the sheets. Press sheets, that is. Hickeys look like tiny, unwanted donuts in the final printed piece. They're caused by specks of dirt and debris on the printing plate, like dried ink, that subsequently become inked up and then printed. The solution? Well, wash the plate. Wipe it clean to remove debris and then get back up and running hickey-free. In extreme cases, the entire press might need to be washed up and new, fresh, crust-free ink applied, for example. So hide these hickeys the next time you're printing Fifty Shades of Grayscale. I is for imposition. Is it worth it? Let me work it. Put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it. So Missy knows what she's talking about when it comes to imposition. Imposition is the arrangement of pages on a digital file or printing plate so that when the brochure or book or magazine is printed and folded, all the pages will be in the correct sequential order in the final product. All is to say, spoiler alert, your favorite book wasn't printed sheet by sheet starting on page one. Very often, for book and magazine printing, sheets are laid out in multiples of eight. So sometimes eight, 16, or 32 pages on a single side of a large sheet that will then be folded down into what we call a signature, which is a chunk of the book that's printed together. Many signatures together make up a book. This is often why there are some blank pages at the end of books, to make sure that the total number of pages is a multiple of eight to accommodate the imposition. So how does Missy Elliott fit into all of this? Well, there are three main imposition styles established in the pre-media department. One called Sheetwise, one called Work and Turn, and the other Work and Tumble. So sheet-wise, the plates used on the front side are different than on the back side. Work and turn, the same plates are used for front and back, and the press sheet is sent through twice, flipping the sheet over for the second pass but maintaining the same gripper edge. And then, work and tumble. The same plates are used, front and back, and the press sheet is sent through twice, but flipping the sheet over for the second pass, the gripper edge changes for the back side. It's a little more complicated than all of this, but hopefully you get the idea. Anywho, 
Missy and I both agree that work and tumble has all the fun. To my fellas, I like the way you work that. To my ladies, you sure know how to work that. Now there are more ABCs of GCM to come in the next episode, so stay tuned. <laughs>